Phil Calloway. If you're older, you might remember him. He was a comedian, but uh, he, he tells a story of how he is uh, uh, with a son driving down the, down the street and uh, driving past buildings, and they are eventually are driving past the cemetery where all the beautiful green grass and the tombstones there in just immaculate condition. And as they're driving by, they uh, drive by one plot that has been dug up that is ready for a casket to go in. And, and the little, little son looks up and says, Dad, look, one got out. <laughs> <laughs> as the old traditional saying says, he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Anyways, let me read uh, the Easter story. Very early Sunday morning, before sunrise, Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. And when she arrived, she discovered discovered that the stone sealed that uh, sealed the entrance to the tomb was moved away. So she went running as fast as she could to tell Peter and the other disciples. The one Jesus loved. That is actually the author who, who wrote John. She told them, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb, and we don't know where he is. Then Peter and the other disciples jumped up and ran to the tomb to see, to go see for themselves. They started out together, but the other disciple outran Peter. Again, that was the author, just had to mention that. Oh. He outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He didn't enter the tomb, but peeked in and saw only linen clothes lying there. Then Peter came behind him and went right into the tomb. He too noticed the linen cloths lying there. But the burial cloth that had been on Jesus' head had been rolled up and placed separate from the other clothes. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in, and after one look, he believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that prophesied that he was destined to rise from the dead. Puzzled, Peter and the other disciple then left and went back to their homes. Mary arrived back at the tomb, broken and sobbing. She stooped to peer inside, and through her tears, she saw uh, two angels in dazzling white robes sitting where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. Dear woman, why are you crying? He asked. Mary answered, They have taken him away, my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Then she turned around to leave, and there was Jesus standing in front of her, but she didn't realize that it was him. He said to her, Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Mary answered, thinking he was only the gardener. Sir, if you have taken his body somewhere else, tell me, and I will go and marry Jesus interrupted her. Turning to face him, she said, Rabbi, Aramaic for my teacher. Jesus cautioned her, Mary, don't hold on to me now, for I haven't yet ascended to God, your father. And he's not only my father and God, but now he's your father and your God. Now go to my brothers and tell them what I've told you, that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Then Mary Magdalene left to inform the disciples of her encounter with Jesus. I have seen the Lord, she told them. And she gave them his message. That evening, the disciples gathered together, and because they were afraid of reprisals from the Jewish leaders, they had locked the doors to the place where they met. 
But suddenly Jesus appeared among them and said, Peace to you. Then he showed them the wounds of his hands and his side. They were overjoyed to see the Lord with their own eyes. Jesus repeated his greeting, Peace to you. And he told them, Just as the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. Then, taking a deep breath, he blew on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. I send you to preach the forgiveness of sins, and people's sins will be forgiven. We're going to spend some time talking about the resurrection today. And uh, before we get to that part, I want to spend a bit of time talking about the life of Jesus. And uh, in the very book, uh, beginning of John, it's the same gospel that we read the Easter story from. At the very other end, he begins by saying this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then down in verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so right off the bat, John tells us that Jesus was God, and he's filled with life, and that God actually becomes flesh, uh, that Jesus was, was God in the flesh, uh, walking amongst people. Then in verse 18, he says, the one and only Son, that's Jesus, who is himself God, again, he mentions Jesus being God, and in closest relationship with the Father, because God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has made him known. Now, one of the reasons Jesus came that God walked on this planet was to reveal who God was, to make him known, to reveal the character of God, to reveal the heart of God, to show us whom God is really like. Because sometimes we get confused on what God is like. A lot of ideas out there of what God is like. Some people see God as harsh and controlling and angry and, and just waiting to beat you up every time you mess up. Other people see God as distant and uncaring and far away. Uh, doesn't really care that you're suffering or hurting or going through things. He's just out there somewhere and everywhere in between. There's all these ideas about who God is. But Jesus comes and he actually shows us who God is. He reveals the very character and the very nature and heart of God. In fact, Jesus would say that everything he said came right from the Father. Everything he did came right from the Father. And so uh, when we look at the life of Jesus, we begin to get a clear picture of who God is. And what God is like. And so we see, uh, in fact, like the very first miracle that Jesus did, and the very first miraculous thing he did to reveal who God was, was actually turning water into wine at a wedding party. And it just is, this is the heart of God, that God cares about community, and he cares about celebration. Uh, we see later on in the book of John uh, that Jesus meets with a Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, People didn't talk with Samaritan women. This woman obviously was some sort of outcast because she was going to the well at noon, which women didn't do because it was too hot. And we find out that this woman had been divorced not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. And Jesus stops and begins to, to show love to her and communicate with her and reveals to her that he is the Messiah. Uh, I mean, Jesus had this, this heart for those kinds of people. And this is God's heart. Because Jesus came to reveal the heart of God. We see Jesus caring for a Canaanite woman. We see Jesus 
uh, stopping these religious leaders from trying to stone this woman who was caught in adultery and says to this woman, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And notice the order of those words uh, that Jesus, uh, he just showed love to people because God has a heart of love. Uh, we see Jesus uh, touching the untouchable. Uh, there were times when he came across uh, people who had leprosy, which would be any kind of skin disease, but those kinds of people were always forced outside of the community. Nobody would touch them. And Jesus, uh, he touches the lepers and then heals them. And again, notice the order. He touches them and heals them. These, these people who had not experienced touch in years or perhaps for a lifetime, Jesus holds them. And again, revealing the heart of God, revealing who God really is. We see Jesus telling a story about what God is like, uh, the story of the prodigal son, how the son asks for his father's inheritance before he died, which, uh, which is a horrible thing to do. It was like basically saying, I wish you dead. And the father, being gracious, gives him his inheritance, and he heads off, and he doesn't invest the inheritance. He doesn't use it to go to college. He, he, he wastes it all on wild living. And eventually he runs out of money, and he's feeding pigs, just trying to get some food in his belly, and uh, he, he thinks to himself, maybe I could just go home to my father. Maybe he'd accept me as a servant. Maybe not, but maybe he'd accept me as a servant. And, and Jesus says that when the son was a long ways off, that the father runs out and embraces his son and puts a ring on his finger and throws a party and welcomes him back into the family with full privileges. And, and Jesus says, this is what God is like. This is the kind of heart God has. We see Jesus going around teaching uh, very powerful things like loving each other and even more in-depthly loving even your enemies. And, and Jesus actually uh, didn't just teach those things, but he actually did those things. You remember uh, uh, the Last Supper, the night before he was betrayed, he actually begins to wash the disciples' feet. Again, this is only something that the lowest slaves did, but here's God in the flesh. Being willing to take the position of a slave, and he washes his disciples' feet. And one of those disciples was Judas, whose heart was set to betray Jesus, who was set against Jesus. And actually, Jesus comes to him and actually washes his feet, and, and Jesus loving his enemies. And then he looks out at his disciples and to us, and he says, I give you a new command that I want you to love as I have loved. Now, we walk in the footsteps of Jesus and loving others and, and even loving our enemies. And then, of course, Jesus is arrested. And during his arrest, do you remember Peter trying to defend? Jesus takes out a sword and, and cuts off the ear of one of the, the guys arresting Jesus. And Jesus doesn't go, yeah, you get him. <laughs> but Jesus, revealing the very heart of God, heals this, this man's ear. Again, carrying out this idea of loving your enemies and this love flowing from the heart of God. And then Jesus, he is whipped, he's nailed to a cross. And as he's hanging on this cross, he is nailed between two criminals. And the criminals themselves say, we deserve this. They were hardened criminals. And they were hanging on the cross. And, and uh, Luke's gospel says that both of them were hurling insults at Jesus. Uh, teasing Jesus, throwing out insults, but then... Another gospel writer points in later that one of the guys hanging there has a change of heart. And eventually, instead of hurling insults at Jesus, he says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into my kingdom? 
And Jesus did not say, well, no way, you were just, you were just dissing me. I'm not, I'm not. But Jesus looks at this guy and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Like it's that easy to go into the kingdom from hurling insults to saying, Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom to you're welcome in my kingdom. It's just this love flowing from the heart of the Father, which is incredible. And so if you're here just wondering who God is, I wonder what kind of God we, we teach about even at this place. We, we teach the kind of God that Jesus revealed. Because Jesus was and is God in the, the flesh. Now it's also interesting that the central focus of Christianity is, is this cross. And one of the major arguments that often people will bring uh, against a belief in God is, well, if, if God is loving, if God is like this God that Jesus reveals, then, then why would God allow suffering and evil? Why would he allow this pain that we see maybe in, in my life or your life or around us? How could a loving God allow this as if somehow belief in God and suffering are, are not uh, compatible in any way? But it's interesting that the very central focus of the scriptures is a suffering cross. Uh, God himself, who comes down and walks among us, is whipped and beaten. And the historian Josephus said that often when people were whipped because the whip was, was had embedded in metal and, and lead, it would actually uh, sometimes whip people to the bone. This, this is God himself going through that kind of suffering. And then he is nailed to a cross and again, one of the most uh, uh, horrible ways to die, that even if you were a Roman citizen, you, you couldn't be crucified. It was that horrible. But God himself experiences suffering. And, and so this idea that, that, that God and suffering somehow, you know, if they're suffering, then there can't be a God. Well, God himself is hanging on a cross. And so one thing we do know is that God understands. This is not some distant God who doesn't understand what you're going through. If you're going through a difficulty or pain, a God very much understands, and yet he very much cares. And I say, well, why doesn't God just get rid of people? You know, one of the answers that Christianity gives is, is the idea of free will. Uh, because God is love, as 1 John 4 says, God is love, that he can't be completely controlling. <laughs> and to love someone means you give them freedom. I mean, if you really love your spouse, you don't control their every movement, you give them freedom. Because love requires freedom. And because God is love and he creates mankind, he gives us freedom. And, and we all know that there are times in our own freedom we make choices that hurt the heart of God and hurt the heart of others. Uh, this, this evil and suffering we see comes even out of our own heart as, as we hurt people. And, and sadly, there are people in this world who uh, make even worse choices that cause tremendous pain. But this is all coming from this freedom that God gives and, and this heart of love he has for, for mankind. And so uh, the central picture, there, there's this cross, this, this God who comes down and he suffers and therefore understands. But we know that's not the end of the story, that there is resurrection. After three days in the tomb, he rises again on Sunday morning, and it changes everything. And the resurrection is one of those stories that, that should become one of our defining stories that defines uh, how we live our life. I mean, there's a lot of things we hold in life. Some of it's difficult, some of it's fun, some of it's enjoyable, some of it's painful, some of it's hard. But the thing that we always hold more highly than anything else is the resurrection. The belief in the resurrection, to have that as our defining story, it really does change every aspect of life. And I want to talk about three things 
that the resurrection redefines. And the first one is the resurrection redefines, the redefines death. Um, last week I, I did a funeral. Uh, we know death is difficult and is hard. We heard this week about uh, Diana's brother passing away. Um, uh, death is a reality. Uh, probably most of you in this room know what it's like to lose someone close to you, a family member, a friend, a loved one. Uh, death can be incredibly difficult and incredibly, incredibly painful because it kind of rips this, this love that we have for this person. We can't see them anymore. And, and it would have been incredibly painful for the disciples. Uh, they had put all their hope in Jesus as the Messiah. And there were crowds of people who were lining the streets as Jesus walked in during that last week. And they were shouting, Hosanna! Save us. And uh, they had their hope in Jesus, and then all of a sudden he's hanging on the cross, uh, dying a criminal's death. And you can imagine how confused and how filled with pain, like, what in the world is going on? But then Jesus rises from the dead. And it's a reminder that our story doesn't end here. Jesus' story didn't end with his death. It ended, or continued, if you will, with his resurrection. And your story doesn't end with your death. If the resurrection becomes your defining story, this life is not the end of your story. It's not. Uh, we know how a good story works. You read a book or uh, a movie, and you will notice that there's always this complication. There's uh, intensity building. There's something really bad that's happened or really complicated, and it needs to be resolved. And there's this grand point of the story, and then there's a resolution. And, uh, and we like those kind of movies, at least I hope you do, with happy endings, where the issue is resolved. Even though sometimes it can take a million seasons to get there, but uh, there's this re resolution. But imagine if, if we just ended our story there. If every movie you saw just ended with the complication, every book you read just ended with the complication, we'd be just like, there's something wrong with this. It, it has to have a resolution. And you know, a lot of people live their life like this, where they think, that death here is the end of their story. And, and uh, some people have lives that you know, kind of go easy. But, you know, a lot of people have lives that are full of suffering. A lot of people have lives that are filled with trouble. In fact, Jesus told us in this life we're going to have trouble. And, and imagine if that's where the story ended was with our death. If that were the case, then we would really, if you will, have to put all our Easter eggs in this basket of life, right? Uh, we would have to make sure we, we make everything count. We've got to live to the fullest. We've got to make everything count because this is the only life. This is the end of my story is when I die. But the resurrection tells us otherwise. The Bible says because Jesus rose from the grave, we too will rise to eternal life. That our story has a resolution. Amen. Uh, our story doesn't end with this life. When the resurrection becomes your defining story, you realize I don't have to get everything done in this life. I can relax a little bit because this is only the beginning of my story. There's far more of my story yet to come after my death. But if you erase the reality of a story after death, then you just life becomes stressful because it's all about here and now. And I got to live for today. And I don't know, this is my only life. But we realize through Jesus, the story goes on. In John 11, this is Jesus talking to a mourning woman who just lost her brother. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. 
He says, you will live even though you die. This is not the end of your story. When the resurrection becomes your defining story, you realize that, yes, death is a part of this life, and it is incredibly painful at times and incredibly hard, but I got a story that defines my life, and it's the resurrection story. And so I know this is not the end of my story. This is not the end of your story. Through Jesus, your story just gets better and better and better and better and better. Uh, the resurrection also redefines, it redefines hope. Uh, there's a lot of things in the life that steal our hope. There's a lot of things in this life that steal just life out of us. Life can be, can be draining. But Jesus said a lot of hopeful things. In fact, Jesus said a lot of crazy things. Uh, check out some of these things that Jesus said. He said, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. And the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. He's talking something more about physical food, but just soul, soul satisfaction. In John 10, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. John 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. You will Find rest for your soul. He says, your sins are forgiven. And multiple times he looks at people and he says, your sins are forgiven. Some pretty crazy things that Jesus said here. Some pretty big promises. But you know what? I could say the same things. I could go around and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. If you just trust in me, you're going to have eternal life. I mean, any of us could walk around saying those things. So, so, I mean, how do we know that, that, that this is going to give us hope. How do we know that Jesus' words are true? Well, there was another time Jesus gave another crazy promise, and he said this. After you've destroyed this temple, I will raise it up in three days. Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Before he died, Jesus said, I'm going to be in the grave for three days, and then I'm going to rise again, and Jesus does die, and then the third day he does rise again. Amen. Now, anybody who can say that and do that, I'm going to trust I mean, the resurrection of Jesus is, is like saying, these promises, they're legit. These promises, they're a go. These promises, enter into them because they are real life, which means you actually can be forgiven. Now, any guilt you're holding on to, any shame that is existent in your heart, anything that keeps you from breathing uh, just a, a deep breath of peace, that Jesus forgives that. And when the resurrection becomes your defining story, all your guilt, all your shame is taken away because as Jesus hung on that cross, he said, it is finished. He absorbed all our darkness and ugliness and all of our sin. It means we really can be forgiven. And because Jesus rose from the dead, it means we really can actually have rest in our souls. In this crazy, hectic world that drains us of life, there is a source where Jesus says, Come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It actually means you can actually have true soul rest. It means that there is a source of life that will never run dry. I mean, we are, we are constantly looking for life. We are life vacuum cleaners. I mean, we try to suck up life from our job. We try to suck life from other people. We try to suck life from money. We try to suck it from all these places. But the only place that we can actually really get life is Jesus. 
He's the only source of life that never runs dry. And these promises are good, which means you actually can have hope. No matter what you are going through, when the resurrection becomes your defining story, you actually can have hope, which means whatever story that is troubling you, whatever story is holding you down, you hold the resurrection story as your defining story. This story doesn't define you. This story defines you. And in that, you can find life and peace and, and hope and joy. In fact, in 1 Peter, it says this. In his great, great mercy, he has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. If this is a living hope, it's not something that was dead 2,000 years ago. This is a living hope that is alive and well today. And the resurrection also redefines our life. In John 14, Jesus told us this. He said, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. In other words, when Jesus died... And he rises again. He, he didn't just like disappear up into heaven like out past Pluto somewhere. This was not a Jesus who died and rose again and just disappeared and went to Hawaii and left us alone. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you. And he hung around for 40 days and then ascended. But he, he comes to us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through his own presence in us. In fact, John 14, Jesus says this. My father will love you so deeply that we will come to you and make you our dwelling place. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you recognize this because we've been talking about this year and we're going to talk about this idea of not being abandoned as orphans next week. Uh, but, but God actually makes his home with us. That's what he says here. That God will come to us and he makes us his dwelling place. That the God who is perfect love and the God who is perfect power actually moves right into us and we become his home. That's why we are called the temple of God, that the church being the temple of God, that he actually lives right in us. So you're not alone. And when you allow the resurrection story to redefine you, you realize that no matter where you are, you're not alone. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. That even if you're going through junk and, and you're even rebelling, God says, I won't leave you as an orphan. Uh, that you are not alone in Jesus. And so, again, we let this story redefine who we are in, in Jesus. In fact, one of the last things that Jesus said, according to Matthew, at least at the end of the gospel, he says, I am with you always. Uh, what story redefines you? Is it the resurrection story? Is it your own story? Is it frustration? Uh, we are to be defined by... The resurrection story. And I just want to finish with this, with a couple responses to the resurrection. Uh, if you read through John's gospel, you realize uh, people respond differ differently to the resurrected Jesus. We see that John, the disciple got in the tomb first. It says when he saw the empty tomb, it says the disciple had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. Right away, John walks into the tomb sees Jesus gone, and he, he just believes the resurrection happened. He believed it was true. Mary, when she saw the empty tomb, was like, where's the body? She believed there was a natural explanation to the missing Jesus. She said, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Uh, she thinks something uh, someone stole the body. And then we have Peter, who was just confused, like usual. He saw in, 
and he sees the empty linen wrappings, and, and then he went home again, wondering what happened. He's just like, I have no idea what happened. I'm just, I'm just confused. <laughs> and then you have Thomas, who was just like, I don't, I don't believe it. He replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hands into the wound in his side. This is after all the others said, we saw him, he's real, he rose from the grave. He's like, I don't believe it. And the reality is, just knowing probably a group the size here, that there's probably people in all four categories here. And you know what, that's okay, because all of these disciples are on this little journey, and they eventually uh, ran into the resurrected Christ. I mean, some of you are just like, I, I just believe this. And it's easy for me to believe, because man, i got to believe in a resurrection, because I know this life is not the end, and, and I just feel God, or whatever it might be. I believe it. And that's awesome. Some of you might be confused. You're like, I just don't know how to explain the resurrected story. I'm not quite sure what to do. And, and if that's you... I just encourage you to, to explore this a little further, because if this is true, then it changes everything. If it's not true, just go on living, whatever. But if it's true, it changes everything. It means there's a source of life. It means this is not the end of your story. It means you can be forgiven. It means there's someone who actually wants to move in your life, whose name is love and power and goodness, and he wants to transform you. Uh, if it's true, then it changes all, everything. So... Keep, keep figuring it out. Keep looking to Jesus. Some of you might be just like, I don't believe it. I don't believe this at all. I would, I would actually need to see Jesus stand before me. I need some evidence uh, for this to believe. And Thomas was like that. And if that's you, I don't know if you're into scholarly reading, but you can pick up an 800-page book like this. Uh, lots of books on the evidence of Jesus, if that's what you need. I know only maybe some of you do, and maybe some of you don't. Uh, Dr. Mike Lacona wrote this on the resurrection of Jesus, and he basically took a secular historical research method to see whether the resurrection of Jesus was true or not. Just like we use the historical method to find out, did something happen with the Roman Empire or not? Was it true or not? We use a historical research method. He applied this to the resurrection, and this is what Dr. Michael Lacona says. He says, we have historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and when you subject that historical evidence to a strictly controlled historical method, the resurrection of Jesus is not only the best explanation, it is by far the best historical explanation for the known historical data. And, and, and there's lots of books written on this. But if you're just, I just don't believe this until I have some evidence, well, I would encourage you to look up that evidence. Because again, if this is true, it changes everything. Um, I mean, if someone said... You know, there may be some treasure buried up some logging road and it might be worth a million dollars. Might be there, might not be. I think you go check it out, at least to see if it's true. If this is true, it changes everything. It is worth looking, looking into. And maybe you're like uh, Mary. You're just like, you just have some sort of natural explanation. Well, maybe someone just stole the body. But what changed Mary was she had this encounter with Jesus and this experience with Jesus, who she thought was a gardener, and once she experienced the presence of Jesus, she, she believed. And you know, there's some people you can throw evidence at, and they're like, no, I, I need to experience, I need to experience God for me to believe. And Jesus did that a lot through the Gospels. One of the most common ways he drew people to him was he gave them people an experience. He healed them. He touched them. He did something powerful in their life. And then, uh, then, they, then they believed. And Jesus still can present people with experiences that, that are powerful. 
I, I just finished uh, uh, reading this book, uh, Mike Margu, who, who, who grew up in the faith, but he, he turned his back on Christianity. And he gave us, he became a, a staunch atheist, a, a humanist, he didn't believe anything spiritual, uh, anything spiritual, he believed that this life was it, and he, he gave up the faith. And then he had this weird experience one day, he was in the ocean, and uh, he had this mystical experience where the waves just began to wash over his feet, and this powerful sense came over him that it was Jesus washing his feet. And he saw this bright light which just overwhelmed him, and he said he felt God's love, and he felt God's love for the world, and it broke him. Uh, this experience was so powerful because he was an atheist, because he was a naturalist, he actually couldn't explain it. He actually went to his doctor and thought maybe he had a brain tumor. And so uh, he had the doctor do an MRI and a CT scan, and they said, your brain is completely fine. Again, as an atheist and naturalist, there's got to be some explanation because these supernatural things don't happen. So he said, well, maybe, maybe I'm going psychotic. And so he, he goes to a psychologist, and they do a whole battery of psychological tests, and they find out he's, he's perfectly normal with his brain. And so he begins to realize there, there's got to be something supernatural to this world. And because he had this love for science, he talks about how, how science, the study of science, and, and God brought him back to the faith. But, uh, but maybe you're here, and you're just like, I, I need an experience. And, and God is a relational God. Uh, the main reason he comes to us is to restore the broken relationship of the Garden of Eden. And he comes to bring us into relationship. And I would encourage you to just open your heart and say, God, would you meet with me? Just begin talking to him. Just open yourself up to him. And, uh, and we pray that God will meet you. And our prayer is here for all of you that uh, the resurrected story would become your defining story. That every thought you think is not being defined by the trouble in front of you, but every thought you think is being defined by the resurrected Jesus. That every step you take is being defined by the reality of the resurrection. That whenever we face trouble or death, we are defined by the reality that this is not the end of our story. It keeps going on, and it only gets better. So Father, we thank you. God, for revealing yourself through your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you that we don't have to wonder who you are. God, we don't have to be frustrated that we don't know if you're angry or distant, that, that we know who you are, that you are the one whom Jesus revealed. And you love us, and you're gracious, and you're far more good and merciful than we know. God, we thank you that you are calling all of us, that you want all of us to come home. God, like the prodigal son, you are running towards you saying, I want to move into your life. I, I want to bless you. I want to lift you up. God, I want the, the, the defining the resurrection story to define lives. And so, God, if we're here and we believe, we, we just say thank you for the resurrection. God, if we're here and, and we're confused, we don't know what to think, I, I pray you bring clarity. God, begin to speak into our lives. God, I pray if we're here, we're like, I don't believe this. I need some evidence. God, that you would just place that in front of us, that you would give us the desire to look for that evidence that's there. God, if we're here, we're just like, I just need, I need some sort of experience. I need, I need to, to sense you, that you're real. God, we pray you would meet powerfully, powerfully with those people. God, that they would sense your love and your mercy and your grace washing over them. 
We thank you, God, for life. We thank you that this is not the end of our story. In Jesus Christ, we pray.